0: Now we're turning again this morning to the gospel according to Mark. Uh, We looked at the end of chapter 4 last week, and this week we're reading chapter 5, and the passage is chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and uh, you'll find this, I think, on page 1007 if you're using one of the, the church Bibles. Just be, before I read it, uh, uh, a a dangerous thing for me to do, a word about geography. Um, This section begins on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in the north of the country. Uh, Last Sunday we saw them go over to the east side of Galilee through the storm to what is described here as the country of the Gerizines, and if you have a modern Bible, you'll find all kinds of footnotes, all kinds of different names because I think it's a little like saying to a stranger, where are you from? And uh, you're actually from Broughty Ferry, but you say Dundee. Um, Different ways of describing your location depending on the people to whom you're speaking, okay? But the story ends with the uh, demoniac in, uh, you'll notice verse 20, in the Decapolis. And this was a group of cities, Uh, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, don't even bother thinking about it, Um, uh, really created by uh, the the, um, invading Romans. Um, And if if you're ever there, you will see the most amazing things dating back to the days of uh, Roman uh, occupation. And it was largely, if not entirely, populated by Gentiles, which is, of course, why there were so many pigs there. You would not get away with having a herd of pigs uh, in uh, Jesus' day if you were in Jewish territory. And I think that's a little hint. That will help us later to understand something. So chapter 5 verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him. Now notice what he's doing here. This is a footnote. This is in parenthesis. He meets a man. Now, says Mark, let me tell you about this man's story. So, this is not a continuation of action. This is a description of this man's story in order that we can understand the action. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles In pieces, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now back to the action. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, now notice that's action that precedes the previous verse. He cries out this way, for Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now this is the second of a trilogy of studies in this little section in Mark's gospel, and last Sunday I said that in them there would be two guiding principles. The first would be the words with which the previous story begins as the disciples get into the boat. uh, We are told by Mark that they took Jesus just as He was. They took Jesus just as He was. And part of the message of this passage is Jesus is never who you thought He was when you took Him just as He was. So look out for surprises. He is the one who says, we're going over to the other side, and therefore Mark is teaching us it's Jesus who led them into the storm. And the other verse that has guided us is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 verse 8 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And some of you may remember I said that does not mean Jesus is eternal, although that is true. What it means is Jesus is today all that He was yesterday, during the days of His flesh. And so, the the question with which we're trying to probe what Mark is saying as he teaches about Christ and as the question, who really is Jesus, arises regularly in Mark's gospel, Uh, we're, we're, we're asking that question now about this passage. And at least in my own estimation, maybe outside the Book of Job in the Old Testament, this man is in the most pathetic and heartbreaking condition of every one of whom we read in the pages of Scripture. He is beyond. He's beyond control in verses two and five. He is an unclean spirit. He runs about crying and he engages, interestingly, in self harming. So he is beyond control. He's also beyond help. At the shackling of him, that, that probably was an attempt at a primitive straitjacket. They want the man to calm down and to control him, but nothing can control him and nothing can help him. No one is able to do it. No longer can they bind him with chains. No straitjacket can pacify him. And he's beyond reach. He lives outside the community. Uh, We're told elsewhere there was another similar man running around in the mountains and in the caves. And as Bernard uh, said at the beginning of the reading of Psalm 121, uh, than which no better Psalm probably could have been written, written, uh, read today by the providence of God. The hills were not, despite what so many Scots have thought, the place you look in order to get help, but the place where you go and you need help because they are the place of danger. And he's running around among the graves, and so he he lives, one might say, quite literally in the valley of the shadow of death. And. by the end of this narrative, in these famous words, he's sitting there with clothes on and uh, he's in his right mind. And my problem and your problem, we know it all, don't we? Uh, our, there's nothing here that surprises us. You know, when you read a passage in, in, the, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and there's nothing in it that surprises you, that's really a sign that you haven't actually read the passage very well, isn't it? Because by definition, the Gospel is a complete surprise. By definition, Jesus is a complete surprise. Surprise. And so, actually, because, you know, some of us at least know these stories so well, perhaps even off by heart, maybe even learned them in Sunday school, it is one of the most important things you and I can do when we read a gospel narrative is to ask the question, what's surprising about this? Because if I don't see anything surprising in it, kind of by definition… I can't really have read it right. For example, here's a surprise. There are three requests made of Jesus. He says yes to two of them. He says no to one of them. And the person to whom he says no is the good guy in the story. He says yes to the bad guys, and he says no to the good guy in the story. That's not how it's supposed to be with Jesus. Jesus is supposed to say yes to the good guys, moi, and no to the bad guys. So this is a story full of surprises, and and the way I want to try and get into it is by by asking a series of questions that I think bring out the marvel of what it is that is happening here. And there are four of them. And I think it's fairly obvious that what Mark wants us to do here is just to stop. Because he's already, we're just in chapter five, he's already given us three separate accounts of exorcisms. And it's always saying, okay, you know Jesus cast out devils. Let's stop and look at this and and learn something about Jesus and not just think, oh hum, Jesus has the power to cast out demons. Let's see what it is about Jesus that is so remarkable and so wonderful. So, here's my first question. Why did Jesus' words not have An immediate effect on this demon-possessed man? Why did Jesus' words not have an immediate effect on this man? In all the other earlier cases of demon possession, it just looks as though Jesus commands demons to leave people, and they leave. But you'll notice, and I tried to point this out as we were reading it, that that is not actually what happens here. Jesus commands the demon to leave, but the demon does not leave. Now, where do we see that? We see that he comes and he falls down and he cries out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me for, notice that, for in verse 8. He says this because Jesus has already been saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But apparently the unclean spirit, unlike elsewhere, does not come out of the man. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks, and it happens. Here, Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out, and it doesn't happen. Now, why does that happen? It happens because then Jesus... As he sees this response, realizes there's more here than meets the eye. And you see this man running around? It only takes one demon, incidentally, to do that to an individual, drive them to despair out of their minds. And when Jesus is commanding the unclean spirit to leave and the unclean spirit speaks back and doesn't leave that's an indication to Jesus, then I need to probe a little further. Like a spiritual physician he is, like your physician asks a question, gets an answer, realizes there's something beneath the surface here. And so he asks the second question, who are you? I mean, it's translated, what is your name? But it, it means who are you? And it is a command intended to elicit information, and the answer is given, my name is Legion, for we are many. That is to say, uh, whatever the mystery of this to us is, this man is possessed not just of one demon but of an entire legion, a legion amounted to five or six thousand Roman soldiers. Um, a a massive company uh, with artillery and regulated, and as Jesus demands of the demon the name, then Jesus elicits the truth of the matter, that what he's facing here is an entire army Now, I know uh, Christians, and you know Christians, who believe that there's demon possession all over the Bible. Friends, there is not demon possession all over the Bible. You read more about demon possession in the Gospels than in the whole of the Old Testament. What there is in the Bible is outbreaks of demon possession. And the reason that we read about so much demon possession in the gospel narratives is therefore presumably because there is a reason for this outbreak. There is a reason why, if I can put it this way, there are 6,000 demons in a camp just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has come like a reconnaissance officer to see what's over on the other side of the sea, and He, d- he discovers there's, there's an entire encampment of them, and for the moment, they are inhabiting one individual. So, so what, how, how do we get into this? We get into this by remembering that the whole story of the Bible and God's salvation begins with this statement. There will be enmity between your seed, Satan, and the seed of the woman, but a day will come when one seed of the woman will crush your head even as you crush his heel. And that day has come, and because there is so much of this in the Gospels, as we, as we dig down underneath, I think it becomes clear to us that uh, having already defeated Satan in the wilderness in chapter 1, what, is, what we are being told here is that there are reinforcements of the powers of hell who are waiting for the occasion when they will mass in order to destroy the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and do everything they can to destroy God's saving purposes in His life. And this day they discover that Jesus has marched right into their territory. Now you've seen this in the, in the story of the temptations. Um, The devil does not come to Jesus, first of all, in the temptations. Jesus goes into enemy-occupied territory. He's driven by the Holy Spirit. This is part of his fulfillment of God's purpose. And one of the things this story indicates to us is that uh, what Jesus is doing here is not simply dealing with one man, but he has come, as the Scriptures tell us, in different ways to destroy the works of the devil, to put the devil to flight. And here he encounters a a legion of the devil's emissaries. And for the moment, they're destroying this poor man. But their real goal ultimately is to destroy Jesus. But Jesus comes to destroy them. So, that explains, I think, why Jesus' words don't have an immediate effect. The second question is this, why does Jesus send the demons into the pigs? Some of you read Bertrand Russell's famous essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. This is one of the reasons. I wouldn't follow anyone who sent demons into pigs. I think there are all kinds of responses to this here. When, when people make that kind of response to me, I'm inclined to say this, what's your view on abortion? And what I find is that people who are queasy about pigs going over a cliff and drowning apparently treat with equanimity the murder of children in the womb. All hell lets loose against Christians because of what Jesus did, but you can be sure if some physician comes on television or is on the front page of the newspapers describing exactly the medical procedures involved in abortion, all hell will be let loose against him. True? I noticed in the Times that one of the markers against Jeremy Hunt, this is not a political statement, is he he personally wants the abortion laws to be changed 24 weeks to 12 weeks apparently that's seen as a disadvantage in him so you know there is a place i think that scripture teaches us where we say you have got no moral grounds for what you're saying you are uh, you're talking about a straw man but that would not be the answer within the context of the gospel, would it? And I think there are probably several answers to why Why does this happen. Um, the first answer actually is actually Jesus doesn't send them. They ask to go. He lets them. This isn't something he thinks up. This is something they think up. And there are all kinds of reasons why this would be appropriate. This was a a pagan country where these pigs are not going to end up in the local supermarket. These pigs are going to end up as sacrifices on the altar of some pagan idol. And in a sense, this is a judgment upon false religion. As the book of Revelation tells us, there will ultimately be a final judgment on all false religion but I think even more immediately what Jesus is doing is saying evil will eventually show itself in its true colors. It's as though to say, so so you saw this man, you just saw him as a man who was out of his mind. Don't you see what the powers of darkness do? Don't you see what they're like? Don't you understand that They have to destroy. They are addicted to destroying the good things in God's creation. And I wonder too if there is this in it, because this sends everybody flurrying around and leaves our Lord Jesus with this poor man. And there's, there's a time gap. And I would pay good money to know, what did Jesus say to him? You know, like funny people ask questions like, where did his clothes come from? And a simple answer to that. Jesus must have said, somebody get him some clothes. I want to talk to him. And I want to reassure, what would, you be, what would you be like if you had been so possessed as this man had been possessed? And Jesus said, you're free now. I suspect most of us would have felt, when are they going to come back again? And it wouldn't at all surprise me that Jesus sat this man down, sat beside him. That's what men do. Men don't eyeball each other, if they can help it. They sit down, side saddle, beside each other and said, My son, they'll never return. You are permanently free. Now there's a third question. And the third question is this, why did Jesus not let this man come with him as his disciple? Why did Jesus not let this man come with him as his disciple? Now, we know the answer, but the answer is kind of counterintuitive when you know the Gospels, because when people want to come with Jesus and they're prepared to pay the cost of coming with Jesus, he always lets them come. Actually, there was a woman that he drove seven evil spirits out of, Mary Magdalene, and she was one of the women who went with Jesus and provided for the needs of the disciple band. There's another man later on in the Gospels, Bartimaeus, who who cries for mercy, and Jesus gives him mercy, and then we read, Bartimaeus followed him in the way. So, what about this one? Well, he says to this one, no, you can't come with us. I mean, that must have been, wow. I mean, don't you think the disciples would be saying, Jesus, don't mess it up. Then you see Jesus has done so much in this man's life that he knows he can say to him, you go home, tell your friends what the Lord has done. And the man does that, but not only does he do narrowly what Jesus said, he does more. And we're told that he goes about through the Decapolis, these ten cities, verse 20, and told them how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled, and later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus crosses the sea again. He goes around, he's on these various preaching tours, but then he comes back. And if you read on in Mark, you'll notice that when he when he comes back again, people are bringing the needy to Jesus. I mean, how did they know anything about him? Could it have been because people had talked about what this man had done and how much the Lord had done for him? Listen, it is one of the most beautiful illustrations in the Gospels that no matter how messed up your life has been. Jesus is not only able to set you free from the guilt and shackles of the past, but He has a purpose to use you for His glory. But there's, uh, there's one last question here <coughs> uh, that I want to ask and try and answer. And it's actually fairly obvious, except you don't see it until you see it. Why did he cross the Sea of Galilee in the first place? He says, Okay, boys, we're going over to the other side, they get through a storm. And this is like, you know, I've never had one of these, but this is like this is like the holiday from hell. You know, you find the hotel that you saw the advert. The travel agent said it was fabulous, or you got it on Expedia.co.uk or wherever you got it, and you arrive, you find they're still actually building your bedroom, and the plumbing hasn't been put in. What do you do? You pack up your bags and go home. And it has that kind of feel about it. So we were going to sail over the other side, and boy, there was turbulence at the boat. We get to the other side. This madman runs down to us. We Jesus does this amazing deliverance of this man, and everybody wants Jesus to leave. And the demons have said, let, Jesus, let us go into the pigs, and he says, yes. And the people said, get out of our district, Jesus, and he says, yes. And we're still trying to get our heads around the fact that the man has said, let me come with you, and he's said no, and as we sail back over. Why did did we come in the first place? Well, I'd give good money to know, because Jesus doesn't tell them, and Mark doesn't tell us, but we're surely pretty much pressed into the conclusion that since Jesus lived according to the timetable of His heavenly Father, the reason that He got into the boat was to take the disciples through the storm. And the reason He went to the other side instead of turning back as quickly as they could was because He wanted to save this man. I mean, it's actually such a dramatic picture. It's like the dynamic of the work of Jesus Christ going through the storm to get to the other side to bring salvation to those who are in bondage. That's what he does, and that's actually what Mark's story is in a way about. It's about how he goes through the storm of the cross in order to bring salvation to those who are in bondage. And it kind of looks as though In the first instance, He came just for this man and for what He would do through this man. This man could say, as Paul writes, the Son of God loved me and He gave Himself for me. They took Him just as He was. This man took Him just as He was. And the great truth is that he's still the same. Everything he was yesterday, then, to this poor man, he is for you today to break the power of cancelled sin and set the prisoner free. Um, but uh, he has a question. Before he does that, who are you really? Because you're not who you appear to be. That's guaranteed, isn't it? Who are you really? And it's true, isn't it? It's when it's when that question probes your heart, and and uh, instead of resisting, you. You begin to tell him who you really are in your sin, in your failure, in your dysfunction, in your need, in your bondage, that Jesus sets you free. I have a friend, a minister friend, who uh, through surgery and the, the consequences became addicted to prescription drugs to such an extent that he was actually in his pastoral visitation stealing them from the, the bathrooms that he was asking to use of members of his congregation. And he was visiting somebody in a, in a medical facility, and he, he just casually fell into conversation with one of the physicians, and, and the man was asking about himself, what, what did he do? He said he was a, he was a minister, Presbyterian minister. And the physician said to him, Who's your God? So he began his little witnessing program. And the physician said to him, No, 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 my friend. He's not your God. Drugs are your God. You see, he was skilled enough to see the telltale signs. Put his finger on the mark. And to expose my friends bondage and need. And if we believe there are physicians skilled enough in their diagnosis to do that, you've got to believe little Lord Jesus is skilled enough as the great knower of the hearts to be able to probe you and say to you, I know you are not what you seem. I know what you're hiding. I know what your bondages are. And you know, the the marvelous thing to me about the fact that this is in the Word of God is that there there was no other way for Jesus to do this than to do it publicly. But you know, the thing about listening to the Word of God is that He does it so privately, doesn't He? Through through an innocent question like that, Jesus knows you're not really who you say you are. And he wants to probe. But he, he, when we're listening to preaching, he's doing it privately. He is so kind to us. And he's saying to us, just tell me the truth. Because I am able to deliver you, pardon you, set you free, restore you, transform you, and use you. He's the real deal, isn't he? So if we're going to take Him as He is, He is going to discover who we are. And when we confess who we are, He will tell us that He loves us, but He does not mean to leave us as we are, but to set us free and use us for His glory. No wonder hymn writers put things like Hallelujah! What a savior! Into their hymns, but is He yours? You, you friends, you—you cannot—you—you you cannot hide from Him. And so, you're just as well to tell Him, aren't you? And then trust Him, and then enjoy Him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that, thank You for this great mystery that You tell us about in Your Word, that this is one with whom You had the closest of communion from all eternity, and You've sent Him. He's come willingly, empowered by Your Spirit into the world to invite us to have communion with Himself and communion with You as our Father through the Holy Spirit. Lord, you see us as we are. We, we are a family here in this church and we love each other, warts and all. But we see only the outer man and woman. Sometimes the inner man or woman or boy or girl seems to kind of suddenly appear and we, we think we're really getting to know each other better. But you, Lord Jesus, know everything about us. Draw it out of us, we pray, that we may come to you broken and bruised as we are and find in you our resting place and our transformation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.